Hello and welcome to Travelosophy. I apologise, this episode is a little late in the month, but I've had a crazy month in that I almost died, for real, again. Randomly, I've suddenly become allergic to nuts and honey, and totally out of the blue, I had an anaphylactic shock from taking ibuprofen, which is a painkiller like Nurofen. My lips swelled up, and I drove myself to hospital, but by the time I got there, my throat was closing up. I was probably only a few minutes away from not being able to breathe. Already, when I got to the hospital, I couldn't talk, and that, of course, affected my voice for several days. But I'm really excited to finally release this episode. If you've ever wanted to learn another language, or wondered how some people manage to learn multiple languages, then you're absolutely going to love it. I chat to Nathaniel Rudolph. Nat is an Associate Professor of Applied Linguistics and Language Education at a local women's university in the Kansai region of Japan. His research and teaching interests include teacher and learner negotiations of identity and community membership in and beyond the classroom, inequity in language education, and the use of English and Japanese as multilingua franca. So Nat and his wife Julie, who are originally from Washington, USA, not far from Seattle, have lived predominantly in Japan for the past 15 years or so. However, what's fascinating is their two daughters, Liliana and Nora, were both born in Japan. They've lived their whole life in Japan. They go to school in Japan. They speak Japanese as well as English. So for all intensive purposes, they're Japanese, but they're both white because their parents are white Americans. And according to their passports, they're American, which really questions the notion of identity. And this, of course, is reflected in Nat's studies. Nat often travels for his professional activities. And at the moment, as we speak, he's currently in Bogota, Colombia, attempting to speak Spanish and not Japanese to everyone. So before he headed off to Colombia, I managed to lock Nat down for a chat about learning languages and also his recommendations for traveling in Japan on a budget. So here it is. So today I've got Nat coming from Japan. Welcome, Nat. Hi, thank you. Hi, Jade. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So Nat is an Associate Professor of English Language Teaching and Applied Linguistics. So Nat, with the knowledge that you've got, what advice would you give someone wanting to learn and study languages? Oh, that's a great question. I, you know, I think there are many ways uh, to do it. But personally, for me, you know, living in a context, having the opportunity to interact with people on a daily basis, you know, to, to live your life in and through the language is, for me, the best way. You know, I've known lots of people here in Japan who are uh, English speakers, confident English speakers who have never studied outside the country. But um, I think for me, just to be kind of immersed in a place is is a really valuable thing for sure. And and context doesn't necessarily mean in another country, though. I mean, it can mean if if, for example, your parents speak an additional language, or they speak multiple languages uh, in the home, or they even trans language. You know, they they fluidly kind of flow between quote unquote languages you're able to pick the language up in that setting as well. But for those of us who are starting from scratch, uh, going, going to another place and just being immersed is, is definitely the best way to go. Cool. Can having a generalized knowledge of languages help? Or rather, is there a standard set of rules that can be applied to learning multiple geographically different languages? 
That's a great question, Jade. So I think having experience as a language learner certainly helps. We we go to a place for the first time if we're, you know, if 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 being monolingual was kind of our experience growing up and we go to a place and we're trying to learn from scratch, then that first experience of finding people to connect with, finding ways to be incorporated into that community, finding ways to learn and grow in that space, understanding not just what we're learning, but you know why, why we're learning to use language a certain way. All of those things come from the experience of language learning. And then, of course, we also learn what not to do or what, what doesn't, you know, perhaps what doesn't work for us. So in that case, you know, having the experience of language learning. So for me, my, my first experience was Mexico. And then after Mexico, I, I was there during university. Then I ended up in Japan. And so having that first experience of negotiating community membership and whatnot, I think did help me approach Japan. So one example of that would be really trying to work out the rhythm of daily life. How do, how do people connect with each other? How, in what, in what spaces do you make friends? In what space and in what ways do you uh, develop relationships and things like that? And, you know, can I acquire, for example, in Mexico, I could acquire language by looking at signs. But in Japan, you know, things are written in kanji, which are Chinese characters, or hiragana or katakana, which is like the syllabaries in Japanese. So once in a while, things will appear in English or in nomaji, which is kind of the use of uh, letters that we would use to write English to write in Japanese. But, you know, that was not something that I could, that, that skill of reading and learning and soaking up language that way that I did in Mexico was not applicable in Japan. So that was an adjustment, right? I do think, though, so I, I'm not sure if it's necessarily about rules as much as just learning from your first experience and then applying that subsequently. But if it's really about that first experience, that first experience of learning language in a new place, I would say, where do we begin? Of course, we're rotely learning vocabulary. You know, we're reading... Yeah. We're studying out of a book, or maybe we have a conversation partner and things like that. And I think those are places to start wherever you go. But then the question is from there, how do you start to find a way to become a part of the community? And so to give you a, a very general example, English language teachers who, for example, come to English conversation schools in Japan, one struggle that they have and again, they're being privileged based on their, usually based on their kind of nativeness in English, right? They, their identity corresponds with this idea of idealized nativeness. So they show up and they slide right into a job and that job is created in a place where a bubble has been made for them to speak English. And probably they have help with accommodation and things like this. And probably most of the people they spend time with are English speakers or, for example, <laughs> Japanese people who speak English, right? Yeah, now, what is, that, what is that person going to do to become a member of the Japanese community? They need, they need to find a way to bust out of that 
that social setting or that community and find ways to, you know, participate in the local community. And that is basically challenging what most people do in that situation. So you have to be strong. You have to be willing to kind of go beyond that setting and do what a lot of other people don't do. Now, here's the other flip side of that, though. Because I'm a critical scholar, this is kind of what I would attend to. The fact that somebody is coming to Japan as an English teacher and they're doing so predicated on idealized nativeness in English, well, you're sliding into a category. You're sliding into a role. And you, you basically are part of a binary. And that binary is, I'm a native speaker of English. I am not a local, you know, a member of the local community. Mm-hmm. And then on the other side of the binary is, well, I'm a local community member, but I'm a quote unquote non-native speaker of English. So you're going to find yourself positioned in most of your relationships in that way. You're positioned as an outsider. You're positioned as a foreigner. Uh, you're positioned as monolingual. And most people will engage you in that way. And because so many people um, who are internationals who are in Japan, historically people have been quote unquote English speakers or even English teachers. Quite often you're positioned that way within society. And so wherever you go in the world, now I was just talking specifically about Japan, Wherever you go in the world, you're going to be, you know, positioned certain ways when you come into that space. Maybe it's religious, maybe it's cultural, maybe it's ethnic, and people are projecting upon you who they think you are or who you can or who you should be or become. So one of the challenges of language learning is wrestling with positionality, you know? Fascinating. And so... You know, wherever you go, we we wrestle with kind of participation in the local community because language learning is really about becoming part of a community. Yeah. And so it looks different in different places. So in order to be able to be a successful, quote unquote, language learner, you're going to have to be able to adjust to the idea of what does community participation look like in these different spaces? How am I positioned when I walk into the situation? How do I position myself? And then how do I position other people, right? And I think these are some of the challenges. So a lot of people I've noticed in my experience um, who go and they study and they become a member of the community in Mexico are very successful and very capable speakers of Spanish, whereas in Japan, you know, it's a different kind of challenge to become a community member. And, you know, you may or may not, you know, a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm always marginalized on the outside. That conversation, I think we can unpack in about 10 hours. (laughs) I mean, a lot of the people who are talking about that are so-called white Western native speakers of English who are coming to Japan and they have assumptions about who they think Japanese people are and, and who they think they are. Right. Generally kind of this issue of wrestling with positionality, wrestling with community membership and finding ways to better understand how might I engage with the community. So in my, for example, in my wife's experience, 
in my experience, having children was a way for us to become a part of the rhythm of life and to engage with people in a way that didn't involve our speaking English. Yeah. Although, of course, that, that's a product of it as well. So you're like a magnet. You attract people to you because of your quote-unquote foreignness, yeah. right? But having children and then becoming a part of the community, so we move into a community without internationals living there. And, you know, our, our neighbor who's a little grandma comes over and invites my wife to cook uh, this very local type of fish that's kind of embeds itself in the sand. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a, kind of sounds weird. It's called ikanago yeah. for Japanese speakers out there. But this, you know, having the experience of cooking these fish for four or five hours and engaging in conversation over that, you know, that's an example of acquiring new vocabulary, of, of learning kind of the rhythm of things socially and things like that. Of course. I think with that, you've totally... I mean, obviously, this is what you've been studying. So, of course, you know, you've nailed it. But I totally relate. And it makes so much sense that being part of the community is totally how one improves one's ability to speak another language. Because before I went to Japan, uh, I spent about three months uh, with a, a Japanese native speaker doing intensive lessons. And it was like three times a week. And I yeah. learned... I mean, I had zero Japanese knowledge before then. So in three months, I learned a hell of a lot. And yet when I went to Japan, I did exactly as you say. I was teaching in a school that organized my accommodation, that organized my flatmates, organized who I was hanging out with. I was surrounded by other native English speakers. And plus I had a girlfriend who was Australian as well. And so I was totally surrounded by uh, foreigners and didn't really open myself up to the to being part of the local community. Yeah, the yeah. The closest I came was going to Japanese cooking class, uh, which was totally all in Japanese. And, yeah. I mean, I can see what's going on, so I could figure out what was going on. Yeah. Uh, but that was also where I met my first Japanese friend. Right, exactly. Exactly, Matt. And... Ma and what you were just saying as well about people having a conception of who you are as, you know, you're a foreigner, therefore you're a native speaker, therefore I need to try and speak English to you. That summed up the Philippines because yeah. they looked at me and went, oh, I need to speak English to you. Yeah. That's yeah. why everyone did. Yeah. Well, man, and let me add to what I said. So what I was saying in terms of, finding ways to engage with community and be part of the community if, if you're interested in language learning. This is something that applies to all people, regardless of their background. So I think, you know, oftentimes when we talk about travel, we're talking about people who are privileged to travel. They're privileged to go and to learn a language in another place, for example. Or they have the, you know, they have the the resources to be able to do so. But what I said, I think, also applies to some of the people that I've met here who have come on an ancestry visa from Peru, or they've come from Philippines to study, or, you know, or what have you. People who come, 
they don't have, for example, the luxury of walking into a job that pays the bills. They don't, they don't have the comfort of someone helping them adjust. So they don't wrestle with the things that I mentioned earlier mm. about these uh, Western native teachers, quote unquote, of, of English. But for anybody who's willing you know, and able to you know, make a move to somewhere, and learn the language. I think this idea of community membership, negotiating community membership applies. But one of the challenges with what I mentioned about positioning is people are positioned very different ways. And so for someone who is quote unquote white and Western, they will be positioned in a very different way than someone who is African American and Western who comes here to teach or, you know, someone who comes and works in a factory west of Kobe from Brazil. Their, their lived experiences will be very, very, very different. Their ability to learn language, the spaces that they're afforded will be very, very different. And I think that's why on a basic level, this idea of negotiating membership in the community is shared across the experiences. But the realities of how people position themselves and are positioned, that is a whole nother conversation. Yeah. So I, I think that's a reality that for those of us who are privileged to have choices, you know, we may not stop to recognize that, you know, language learning takes many different, you know, shapes. Is it something we do for, for leisure? Is it something we do because we want to, but we don't necessarily have to. Is it something that people are resistant to engage us with doing, you know, because of who we are and things like that? It's, it's not as simple as you just go somewhere, you do X, Y, and Z. So for yeah, yeah. listeners who come from diverse backgrounds, who are likely very familiar with what it's like to be positioned within their own societies, right? This is, um, I think this is something to point out as well. Interesting and fascinating. Yeah. Is the ability to learn and speak a language genetic or does it come simply the old-fashioned way through learning and usage? So... I think that we're all endowed with the ability to, to learn language. And so in that aspect, it's uh, physiological, right? But in terms of is someone better at learning a language than the next, you know, we all have different kind of knowledge and skills and abilities, but I think the majority of what makes someone a language learner is how they're socialized into a community. So in, in that sense, I think anyone can learn a language and they can, they can learn it successfully. And for me, successful just means to be able to, you know, successfully negotiate meaning with other people in interaction. But I, I wouldn't say that there's a better language learner genetically that I would leave maybe to the theoretical linguists or the neurolinguists, which is not what I am. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I mean, you only have to look at, for example, Australia versus a European. And, right. you know, we only learn English. We And it's not common. I mean, obviously people do study languages here, but 
and you only go, need to go to Europe to find people who, you know, they naturally speak three and four languages and it's right. like second nature to them. That's, right. that's where and I was coming from with that. Yeah, and I would say in that situation, you know, people are socialized into imagining community and connecting with community and connecting with each other and, and viewing kind of self in a very different way. And so for someone who grows up experiencing life in multiple ways, you know, in a, in a translinguistic way, in a multilingual way, then I think for them, they have experience with that idea of seeing, uh, you know, interacting with people in multiple ways and also perhaps seeing the world in different ways as well. Whereas someone who grows up in a monolingual environment and has never experienced what it's like to interact with different types of people who are coming from, you know, divergent linguistic and cultural and ethnic and religious and socioeconomic backgrounds, it might be a bit more challenging to kind of reflect on what does interaction look like? What does um, culture look like? What does identity look like? And things like that. So I think I wouldn't necessarily say that you know, a given language is underpinned by a given culture. I mean, we know there are many ways to be or become an English user. Um, and there are many ways to be or become Australian, right? <laughs> and so I think people who are uh, monolingual and speak what I guess we could call Australian English, although I would argue there are many Australian Englishes, um, you know, they are familiar with the idea of diversity, uh, perhaps, or although they may not acknowledge it, you know, within their own space, but perhaps not in terms of interacting with people in different mediums. And so coming from a monolingual environment and entering or, or you know, coming from a kind of a multilingual or a translingual, translingual environment, uh, the big difference would just be socializing and interacting in different ways and having that experience. So it might be more challenging for someone who is quote unquote mo uh, monolingual, yeah. uh, you know, to, to be able to apprehend the idea that there are different ways of being or becoming though, like I just said, it's not always the case. People are often very aware of that uh, within a given setting. So. Yeah. And with online English language teachers popping up globally, is there still a need for English teachers in Japan? Well, I think there are many ways to answer this question, Jade. And one of the first things I think we have to talk about very briefly is the idea of how you imagine who our students are becoming and what the targets are linguistically, culturally, and so on for quote unquote English language education. So. Some people might argue that, you know, everyone's goal is to become native-like. And that idea of native-like is underpinned by a lot of kind of political discourses and ethnic discourses and whatnot. So although some people may not acknowledge it, when we say native-like, who are we actually talking about? So yeah. if, if an online English teacher is imparting nativeness, quote unquote, to students in Japan, 
it's sort of a one-size-fits-all approach. And that one-size-fits-all approach is underpinned by ideas of who students are. Well, they're non-native. And who do they need to become? They need to become native-like. But who is this idealized native speaker we're talking about? And it you know, often happens that that is kind of a white, Western, North American or British or Australian uh, individual that we're talking about. Because when we teach language, we teach culture. We're teaching paradigms of, uh, of identity as well. So other people might look at that and say, well, wait a second. There are many ways to be or become an English language user, and we need to attend to that. And in attending to that, we're attending to context. So if we're talking about Japan, the question is, who do, for example, learners, who do they or who might they interact with contextually? And you know, the government data says 80% or more of the people that Japanese people interact with in business and in tourism are Asian. So the idea is students in Japan need to be equipped to interact sort of a wide variety of backgrounds, linguistically, culturally, ethnically, geographically, and so on. And online language teaching, if it's someone sitting, you know, in an office in New Zealand, talking to students about becoming native-like, that might be seen as problematic. So I, I feel there is certainly a place for online language education, and I certainly see it popping, um, popping up in a context like Japan. But there is an increasing kind of awareness of this idea that there are many ways to be or become an English language user and a need to attend to context. And so online language teaching is successful within, I think, within language programs in a university. So like one component where students have access in a language learning library or something like that, or perhaps through some sort of English language school that's privately owned. But in terms of replacing people on the ground who, whose job requires that they have a working knowledge of context, uh, I'm not sure that that sort of individual would be replaceable by something online. So yeah. I think online language teaching or teachers are more of a supplement to you know, general language education that transpires, for example, in my situation in a university or, for example, within uh, language schools and things like that. So I think what you've just kind of really nailed there is could also apply to any teaching. So, you know, yeah. whilst online classes are quite popular, especially with, uh, I know there's a lot of apps popping up with online classes, but it's, as a student, you just don't quite get the same level as being in a classroom and being able to interact with other students and your teacher. That's right. And, and Jade, I would like to add that, you know, I'm, I, I would be careful to say that generally in the Japanese context, for example, the notion of idealized nativeness and this idea of idealized nativeness being underpinned by sort of white westernness in a very essentialized, a very oversimplified way, that is still definitely a dominant discourse within education here. So I, I wouldn't say that Japan has become 
you know, very critically oriented in terms of looking at language ownership and use and instruction by no means whatsoever. But I, I would say the idea of having someone, as you just said, in the classroom, interacting with students, you know, is something that I feel like is very irreplaceable, uh, regardless of how the technology develops, at least at this point. So. Okay. You haven't put yourself out of a job yet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I noticed your research was on the bias of English from certain geographical areas. Is that still a problem in Japan? Likely Absolutely. Well, I, I guess let me start with the um, what is the present state of language education here. And so to break it down kind of simply, notions of self and other in Japanese society underpin how we imagine English education. So in the 1860s in Japan, this, this was a time, it's called the Meiji period, yeah. when Japan was, quote unquote, cracked open by American ships arriving uh, in the kind of port near Yokohama. And so at that time, Japan was faced with this idea of how do we deal with the outside world, quote unquote. Now, the idea that Japan was a closed and isolated nation uh, until the time of the Americans is, is imagined. Japan has always been a site of movement and hybridity and diversity. So I think very important to put that out there. But when the Americans arrived, it was at a time where Japan was going through some inward turmoil as well in terms of constructing you know, what, what is Japan uh, in terms of nation building? So these things coincided at the same time, and Japan embarked on this process of constructing a shared national identity. Yeah. Now, in order to do that, there was a lot of kind of essentialization uh, and idealization involved. And what I mean by that is constructing sort of this artificial notion of who people were and who they could or should become within Japanese society. And then what the other quote unquote looked like outside of Japan. And so at that time, Japan was kind of over the course of a couple of decades was constructed as this place of homogeneity, linguistically, culturally, ethnically, and, and so forth. And I think, you know, that was very much happening at the time that, for example, social Darwinism was coming into play um, and all sorts of other things happening uh, in Asia, politically, socially, and whatnot. But what basically happened was there was this movement within Japan to construct a shared national identity. So one part of that was the creation of state Shinto, kind of taking this animistic, I guess we could call it, polytheistic religion, Separating it from Buddhism, which originally Shinto and Buddhism were intertwined and made, made so by two priests, Buddhist priests Saicho and Kukai. So basically became kind of a syncretic religion. But basically the government separated Shinto and Buddhism from each other and called Shinto kind of the indigenous religion. They constructed a national language they constructed a kind of a, a family registry system that linked the emperor with the quote-unquote nation. 
all of these things were happening at the same time during the Meiji period and the period that followed that. So at the same time, we constructed this idea of otherness. And that ended up looking uh, before and then into and after World War II looking like white westernness. And so there's a very famous Fukuzawa Yukichi, very, very famous scholar, educator, um, who started, I believe, started Keio University in Tokyo. Fukuzawa Yukichi talked about something called Datsu Aron, which was kind of a theory on leaving Asia so that Japan could compete on the world stage. It needed to leave Asia. But that didn't necessarily, for, for Fukuzawa Yukichi, mean disconnecting from Asia completely. But in many ways, you know, that kind of sense of disconnect with Asia or not acknowledging the historical connections between Japan and the rest of Asia has kind of become a, a part of the conversation of Japanese-ness, that Japan is somehow homogenous and separate from the rest of uh, the world. And, you know, this leads to strange conversations about the Japanese brain being different and so on and so forth. But anyway, getting back to this construction of shared national identity, you know, it, it was a way to kind of face opening up to the international stage, but it was also a way of uniting and controlling people within Japan. So this is where the diversity that, you know, characterizes Japan was glossed over or kind of downplayed or, or even, you know, persecuted. Um, and Interestingly, at the same time, you know, Japan was acquiring new parts of it, of its geography, including, for example, the Ryukyus I mentioned, which now we imagine is Okinawa Prefecture in the south of Kagoshima. Yeah. But that yeah. area was annexed into Japan, for example, at that time. So it was a place of diversity, yet, you know, was, was incorporated in this idea of homogenous Japan. So... What ended up happening is we have the juxtaposition of, you know, this homogenous Japan against uh, this idealized Westernness. And this underpins the idea of English. So English is the language of globalization. If I want to be global, I need to speak English. And that has been imagined and constructed as white Western North American or British uh, English use. And so what we have is kind of the wiping away of diversity, of complexity when we think about uh, the quote-unquote English-using world. You know, the post-colonial Englishes that have emerged and are emerging, the many ways of being or becoming an English user, English as a lingua franca, or more recently people call it English as a multilingua franca, where people, you know, are using many different languages kind of intertwined fluidly with English. So the interesting thing is, Jade, is that we have this historical bias towards an imagined, idealized, white, Western, urban dwelling, male, usually, native speaker of English, and yet that does not, re you know, represent or reflect the complexity of the world in Japan and beyond. 
But it's persistent. It's persistent. And the question is, why is this persistent? Because it's tied directly to this notion that continues to this day of homogenous Japan, that, that Japan right. is linguistically and culturally and religiously and ethnically and socioeconomically and so on, you know, homogenous. And so when you challenge the notion of kind of idealized nativeness in English, you are at the same time challenging notions of idealized Japanese-ness. And I think this is where the challenge to changing things lies. So, you know, I've, I've heard many scholars who call themselves critically oriented. You know, they think about language ownership and use and instruction. They think about inequity and things like this. But a large portion of those scholars talk about diversity and hybridity and things happening outside Japan. Yeah. But then they refer to Japan as a homogenous nation. And my feeling is you're not going to be able to acknowledge and value this idea of diversity and hybridity or, you know, be able to acknowledge it without acknowledging the diversity and the movement and the hybridity that has always characterized Japan. Yeah. Uh, and therein lies the issue. So the second part of your question was, will it change? And I think therein lies the challenge, right? We're challenging discourses of Japanese-ness as much as we're challenging ideas of idealized nativeness in English. Right. And I know you've got a couple of kids. I do. Uh, we had two daughters, yeah. How no. has growing up in Japan influenced your daughter's upbringing compared to your upbringing in the USA? That's a wonderful question. So throughout this interview, I will likely use the word translingual or transcultural. And it's a different idea from, for example, intercultural, or for example, the idea of code switching, where in one case we use Japanese and then in another case we use English. Yeah. For yeah. us, Jade, the space that we've created in our home, that we've constructed in our home is a translingual and a transcultural space that reflects the identities and lived experiences of my kids. My kids are not American per se, and yet they are American because their passports and their parents are from uh, that particular place. But they are, you know, they're American in their own unique ways. And they're not Japanese necessarily because they don't have Japanese passports, but at the same time, they are members of the Japanese community and they go to public school here. We, we actually, we attend a church here, a Protestant church here that is, you know, translingual and transcultural. And I think that, um, you know, for my kids, their identity is fluid and it's dynamic and, you know, they're constantly kind of negotiating and renegotiating a sense of identity and interaction with their, their friends and, and in our, our home. So I didn't grow up in that sort of situation. You know, I was surrounded by kind of people from different backgrounds and, and different languages and things. Uh, my hometown is near Seattle. But I would have to say that my kids' 
you know, whereas we, my wife and I have chosen to be here, this, this isn't a choice for my kids. This is their home. This is their community. And so their sense of identity and their sense of kind of reference in terms of who they quote unquote are or who they're becoming is very different than <laughs> what mine, you know, was for sure, for sure. So they, they are, um, I'm not sure if I would like to use the word native, but you know, they're, they're competent, confident users of Japanese and English. And those two quote unquote languages uh, are fluidly intertwined in their brains in their conversations. And I think if someone walked into our home, uh, they would be struggling to understand what was going on uh, because of the way the kids translanguage, and, and we all do. And so that environment is completely different as well. So at home to each other, yeah. you yeah. speak only English or you speak combination English and Japanese? So the kind of the way that we've done things is basically we've created an artificial bubble um, for English because my kids, like I said, they go to public school. Yeah. Most of their friends are Japanese speakers exclusively. But, you know, we've created this artificial bubble, but we know and, and we've seen the kids resist. We know that it's unnatural, it's artificial, because in our context, when, you know, when our kids participate in, in the community, they do so through Japanese most of the time. And so at home, we try to kind of give them an environment where they're able to pick up English and they're able to, you know, they're, they're reading in English, they watch shows in English and things like that. But it's inevitable that Japanese is part of our lives as well. Yeah. You know, and so when their friends come over and they don't speak English, you know, we interact with them in Japanese. And for example, I just talked to my daughter, my older daughter, uh, my wife and two daughters are in the U.S. right now. When I was talking to Liliana, my older daughter, she switched into Japanese so that my mom wouldn't understand <laughs> what she was saying. And she's like, Grandma keeps porking out on ice cream and she, <laughs> she can't have dairy. So it's like almond milk based ice cream. And so in, you know, in this situation, it's kind of a fun thing, but it's also part of who she is and how she yeah. connects with me as well. Now, she has a very different relationship with my wife. My kids, most of the time, don't interact with my wife at all in Japanese. And you know, I, I think it comes from the fact that we have negotiated a different sense of relationship with the kids. But my wife is a competent Japanese user as well. And by the way, competent, by competent, I mean, she lives, she survives, she goes through the day, she pays her taxes, she goes to PTA meetings, you know. <laughs> but, you know, Julie and I, my wife and I were not born and raised in, in Japan. And so my kids are realizing that and they're realizing that the way they really connect with us is through English. And I think particularly with my wife, they recognize that she kind of patrols the bounds of English in our home. Yeah. And so that's how they engage with her. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 
On a tourism side, yes. What are the top three experiences a tourist visiting Japan should seek out so that they can leave Japan having had an, an authentic Japanese experience? Oh, that is such a great question. Well, you know, first of all, I think I would problematize the word authentic. I think a lot of people, when they think of authentic Japan, they have this imagined, idealized view of what Japan supposedly is. And a lot of that is perpetuated here within Japanese society, but it's also perpetuated in the West, this idea of who Japanese people are you know, culturally, for example. And most of the time, it's this very essentialized, this very oversimplified idea of Japan. People are, you know, it's a homogenous country. It's not diverse in any way. It's very traditional. Japanese people are very shy and reserved and blah, blah, blah. But, you know... Can I interrupt for a second? Oh, sure. Do you know a funny story? When I first went to Japan... I it was in June or July. When's Gion Matsuri? Uh late July, early August, yeah. Late July, okay. So I arrived in the middle of Gion Matsuri and all the Japanese women are walking around wearing kimonos. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my god, Japan is exactly how I imagined it. <laughs> and then everyone was like, uh, no, it's just for a festival. I was so yeah. busy, disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, I completely understand what you're saying. (laughs) So, yeah. You know, I think I would start by talking about this idea of authentic. So what is authentic Japan? You know, people have oftentimes within Japan and also outside Japan, for example, in the West, very essentialized kind of oversimplified ideas of who Japanese people are and, you know, what Japaneseness is, what Japanese culture uh, is, for example. And, you know, it's, it's much more than temples and shrines. It's much more than origami, you know, paper folding and sushi. Uh, it, it is a place of incredible diversity, um, linguistically, culturally, uh, ethnically, geographically, religiously, and, and so on. And so, You know, this is not a typical approach to traveling in Japan, but one thing I would recommend would be to seek out uh, and experience this diversity. So, for example, you know, in in the south of Japan, the Ryukyu Islands, which now basically we refer to as Okinawa Prefecture and kind of southern Kagoshima uh, Prefecture, you know, um, this area is linguistically and culturally and ethnically unique. And so within this area, there are 750 dialects of six individual individual languages. And these languages are not Japanese. They're not dialects of Japanese. They are actually part of a, a family of languages called Japonic, but they're actually referred to as Ryukyuan languages. And, you know, it Kind of interestingly and very sensitively, the government refers to these languages as dialects. But, you know, a lot of scholars have uh, argued that this is kind of part of a making Japan monolingual policy, which is embedded in this idea of homogenous Japan. It's a very strong discourse that's been in Japan since the late 1860s and kind of a 
kind of part of the construction of a shared, uh, oversimplified national identity, um, which is a whole other story. But, you know, a place like going to the Bukus to experience that linguistic, that cultural diversity is incredible. And then, you know, to go to somewhere like Kyushu, again, in southern Japan, the, the different ways people express or negotiate a sense of Japanese-ness. So Kagoshima in, in the south of Kyushu is a place dialectically that is completely unique, historically unique to, uh, in, in comparison with other parts of Japan. And, and I think that's well known within, within Japanese society, but it's also a place known for like hot sand baths. There's a giant volcano outside the city of Kagoshima. Um, it's known for shochu, which is like a kind of a hard, kind of a harder liquor, like 25%. Um, it's not sake. It's not nihonshu. And by the oh, way, the word, yeah, I mean, it, it, at times it, it's a lot like whiskey. I guess it would, would be comparable in, in smell, for example, to whiskey. But then, you know, you head up to a place like where I'm at. I'm in between Kobe and Osaka. And even in this area, dialectically, things are so different. You head in one direction or in another uh, 30 minutes and people are speaking a different dialect of Japanese. Now, this is not necessarily something that people who don't know Japan would be you know, able to apprehend by visiting here. But I do think language and culture are intertwined. And so yeah. things express themselves in different, unique ways. Um, and that's a really beautiful thing to experience. And then I guess the other thing would be uh, geographically. So if you go to the different parts of Japan, like Hokkaido in the north, very open, wide open and spacious. Uh, it's known for farming. It's known for seafood. Uh, just a very beautiful place with a very different history from this part of Japan. So the people who are indigenous to that area were likely from near the Andaman Sea originally, which is, you know, a very different people group that than the people who sort of migrated into where I'm at. And, and of course, those people come from, you know, a wide range of backgrounds. But, but historically, Hokkaido is a place, and these people are called the Ainu, a place with its own, you know, linguistic and cultural and ethnic history and, and what have you. So yeah. that's a great example. Versus like Nagano with what they call the Japanese Alps, you know, and there's a really thriving microbrewery uh, culture kind of in that area. Yeah. And then you head down to Gifu, which is kind of central, central Japan. And that area has some really beautiful world heritage uh, places like Shirakawa, which these A-frame houses are set up to where they have silkworms growing, or at least they used to have silkworms oh. growing in the rafters of these houses. Wow. Um, and, you know, each place you go to has this difference. And so rather than approaching it as, well, I want to see the major temples or I want to see the major shrines or I want to see Kyoto because Kyoto is authentic Japan or I want to see Tokyo because that's modern, authentic Japan. I would say go outside of the places that we typically think of as authentic 
and, you know, get out into the countryside and encounter this diversity. It's really a beautiful thing. Awesome. And what about in your local area? What's something that may not be in a guidebook but is totally worth visiting? I think one of the most special things about where I'm living now, it's, it's called Hyogo Prefecture. And if I'm not mistaken, it's actually the largest prefecture in Japan. It is a place, if you, if you kind of get away from the, the, the southern portion, which is where Kobe is, for example, if you, you head into central Hyogo or even up toward the Sea of Japan, there are these incredibly beautiful farming communities that have the most beautiful, you know, locally grown vegetables available. There's lots of pottery. There's lots of kind of camping and just getting out into nature and just seeing a very different rhythm that you would otherwise not see if you were in Kobe or Osaka, for example. Yeah. And so, you know, to be honest, Airbnb has really opened the door to a lot of this type of travel. So traveling into a place like central Hyogo. And mind you, many of the roads there, even if they're kind of prefectural highways and things, are one lane, extremely narrow with yeah. massive drops down either side, you know, which just reminds you of the fact that this used to be a footpath, yeah. basically. But, you know, Airbnb has opened a door to that, although now Japan is wrestling with this idea of Airbnb. So yeah, I heard uh, about that. Yeah. Do people want people they don't know staying in a building next to them? Or are we afraid, for example, of internationals? Quite honestly, that's a big discourse in Japan. I think some people chalk it up to, oh, well, Japanese communities are very tight knit and everybody knows what everybody's doing. And these Japanese people from outside of this area traveling to visit or internationals coming in disturbs you know, the, the calm of this community. I don't think it's so much about that. I think that people are very mobile these days in a lot of communities. It's, it's more about just the bother. I mean, if you think generally about who is the person staying next to me. And so I think there's been this conversation about Airbnb, but it hasn't seemed to affect a lot of the places in the countryside. So I, for example, I rented two years ago I rented for a couple of nights this 300-year-old farmhouse out in central Hyogo, and it had this beautiful river in front of it. You know, there was a hot spring, an onsen up the road. You know, it's a thatched roof place. The lady let us, um, you know, pick vegetables out of the garden that was, that was uh, next to the house. And, I mean, to me, that is something would never be in a guidebook. Yeah. and would be off of most people's radars. Now, the question is, how do you get there? So you get there two ways. One, you drive, so you need to rent a car. Yeah. And another way would be you just have to do a lot of research. And if you're not a Japanese speaker, you know, you, you get in there and you find out, will people pick me up or how might I take a taxi to these places? But really you know, your, your sense of what is possible has to change and you, you have to be able to throw yourself into adventure in terms of getting out, but it is well, well worth it. Awesome. 
Have you got a favorite place in Japan? Somewhere you escape to, maybe a weekend getaway? Yeah, I love Nara. The city of Nara, which is in, uh, you know, the capital city of Nara Prefecture. Nara is very similar in some ways to Kyoto. It, It has, you know, a long tradition, kind of long long history. Uh, One of the first capitals of Japan, I guess if you would want to say Japan, wasn't really Japan at that time, but it's, you know, it's it's a a city that bumps up against nature. So you have these really beautiful traditional streets that you can walk down, bumped up against, um, you know, shopping streets and all sorts of kind of gaudy modern buildings. But all of it, the whole package is beautiful and you know lots of kind of local things to try like nihonshu or you know japanese sake sake is actually the term for alcohol in gen- uh, general so nihonshu or japanese you know sake is quite common there and then from for example from nara park which is right next to two of the stations, you can head up into the mountains and just be hiking in these beautiful old forests within, you know, five to 10 minutes. And it's just absolutely gorgeous. And the prefecture of Nara, um, as you head south, it's a place that not a lot of tourists, I think, visit. But another place I would recommend is this place called Takatori, which is it's actually a kind of a neighborhood that's adjacent to a castle that's on the top of a local mountain that was raised to the ground a couple hundred years ago. But the tiles and everything are still on the ground when you go up. It hasn't been cleaned up, you know, so the actual castle ruin is still there. You hike up there, you're completely alone. You get up to the top of this mountain and the views are incredible. And it's so peaceful. But, you know, a lot of violence has been done there, (laughs) you know, but but to be up there and to see that. Amazing. And I would say from where I'm at, it's about an hour and a half away on the train. So easily, I think easily done in a day trip if you're ambitious. So Nara Prefecture, Nara City absolute beautiful places. And I guess I'm a little biased because my two kids were born uh, in, in Nara. So (laughs) (laughs) Japan is often considered an expensive country for tourists. So what advice or tips would you give a tourist traveling to Japan on a budget? That's a great question, Jade. And, you know, I, I think you and I both experienced expensive Japan when we first moved here. Right. Um, uh, in terms of transportation, accommodation, food, and all of these things. But as I mentioned before, I think places like Airbnb have really started to kind of lower the cost of accommodation. Is Airbnb um, in Japan cheap or it, relatively? Compared to other kinds of accommodation here, I would say so. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One, one warning, though, I would say if you – are traveling as an individual, you know, staying in a business hotel or something like that might actually be cheaper than Airbnb. But if yeah. you're renting a house for a family, yeah. then Airbnb is definitely much cheaper. Because in Australia and New Zealand, and most Airbnbs I've looked at were comparable to a cheap hotel. Interesting. Yeah. And so there's this, I mean, 
in some cases you're getting an entire house and uh, but in terms of costs not a great deal like not a great comparison well I would I would say it is it is a, a better deal especially if, if you're with a family yeah uh, another option is something called a minshku which is like a pension where you stay in someone's basically it's someone's home and they have rooms set aside for you to stay and then you eat possibly eat a meal or two in that place and usually they charge per person but i think those sorts of places can be cheaper particularly if you're out in the countryside somewhere accommodation though you know not to not to plug any specific websites but you can search for discount hotels and things like that online and you know the lower the stars on on the page for example if it's a one star business hotel i wouldn't say that should necessarily turn you off to staying in that place it's going to be much more kind of um i don't know simple in terms of what's available but in terms of safety and cleanliness and things like that that that's not something i would worry about although i would avoid love hotels especially if you're with a family <laughs> So that's that's accommodation. Now, yeah. in terms of food, I think that shopping in a supermarket is a wonderful experience. In Japan, it's not exactly cheaper to shop in a supermarket. For example, fruit, which is incredibly fresh and always seasonal, uh, can be quite expensive uh, compared to other places where you know it's available year round. But you are paying for quality, and you know, and it is a great experience. But if you're looking to save money, I think hundred yen stores or hundred yen shops. Yeah. Um, you know, hundred yen is equivalent to basically a dollar American or something like that. Yeah. That's one way to save money. Another way is to is to make your own food, though, and or to eat locally. You know, if you're trying to shop at a supermarket and eat like an Australian or eat like a quote-unquote American, it's going to be quite expensive. Yeah. I think things have changed incredibly since I first arrived here in terms of availability of things like cheeses and wines and products from other countries. I mean, it's much more available than before, but still it can be a bit expensive. If, you know, on the subject of supermarkets, if you find more of a bargain uh, supermarket chain. So, for example, in my area, it's called Kansai Supa, Kansai Supermarket. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's probably half as expensive as some of the other designer supermarkets. So you can find out about that stuff online. But that is one way. You know, eating locally is a big thing to save money and there are lots of discount restaurants that are fun to explore. Um, if you're backpacking or something like that, I mean, there are some places you can eat for basically $5 American yeah. and, and eat well. It's fun, though, to explore supermarkets. It's fun to explore these types of places. And as far as transportation, this is the one thing that gets a lot of people and, and got me when I first arrived here because – Distance and time and cost are calculated in a different way. 
than where I came from. So for example, to fly for $200 American from, you know, basically a three hour flight from Seattle to uh, Arizona in the Southwest of the US, that, that was doable. Uh, but then when I came here and I saw, wow, it, it's that same amount to fly 30 minutes, you know, <laughs> um, and it's, and it's not that things are more expensive here per se. It's just the idea of distance and cost and time are different. And yeah. so when I first got here and people would say to me, oh, you're going to Hokkaido. Oh my goodness. That, you know, that's so far. That's so expensive. It was a very different sense of what distance and time and cost look like. And, and that's not necessarily a Japanese thing. I think it, this is what happens everywhere around the world. Different people have a different sense of how much things cost and what, you know, how much time is too much time Especially to travel. For, I know my mum went to Ireland recently. And mm. I mean, most cities are only maximum 20 minutes to an hour drive but for yeah. them you know to drive across the country is like traveling to the ends of the earth that's right and so if you understand that when you come here understand that you know the the longer your trip the more it's going to cost and one thing that people have been doing to kind of combat that recently has been to take discounted flights there are there are three or four companies now at least that, that have discounted flights, which wasn't, that wasn't available when I first got here. No, um, there was none when I was there. No. And the other challenge here is that if you're Japanese or you're a member of this community and you travel during the holiday season, prices sometimes double or triple on, on tickets. So another recommendation would be for people not to come here during uh, <laughs> Japanese holiday uh, seasons, right? So that would be mid-August, like Obon, yeah. um, which is sort of like um, a period where you remember your ancestors, kind of like a day of the dead or a week of the dead. Yeah. And then also around Christmas until probably the 5th or 6th of January, that New Year period is extremely expensive. As That's probably the cheap time to travel to Japan though perhaps perhaps to Japan but to leave Japan is going to cost it, it's going to cost more so it'll bump yeah. the price of the ticket up and traveling within Japan is very challenging because tickets go you know people plan a year ahead to travel uh, okay. during those periods so and then the other one would be kind of mid to late March when students are traveling and so university students, for example, are traveling. They're going on senior trips because graduation happens in late March. And so ticket prices tend to go up during that season as well. Cool. Uh, and then the final one would be early May, which is Golden Week. And it's, uh, yeah. it's called Golden Week because of the holidays that come together at that time. Beautiful time of the year, but, you know, a lot of people are traveling and people will take three-day holidays to New York. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they pack in as much as they possibly can into that period, and so the price of, uh, prices of tickets and things reflect that. Crazy. So that's a way to avoid 
if possible, you know, to avoid cost and things like that. Cool. And what's something you've learned from life in Japan that should be taught in schools elsewhere? You know, that's a, that's a really interesting question, Jade. I, um, well, I'd be maybe the first to say that I often see, for example, on Facebook, these videos where they say, oh, in Japan, students in school do this. And how different would it be if, you know, children in Australia did this? And so it's a lot of compare and contrast. Yeah. And I think in order to talk in that way, you have to kind of predicate your conversation on stable categories of identity and culture. But when you live in a place, you realize, well, it's not that simple, right? There are many ways to be or to become a member of Japanese society. So not everybody, for example, during the World Cup, not everybody picks up garbage, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, in the World Cup stadium. However, we can't forget that some people do, yeah. right? Some people absolutely do. And, and so having sort of a balanced way of thinking about things, I think is really important. But, you know, one thing I feel like I've learned living here is that where I came from originally, I felt, and this is just my personal opinion, I felt that it's very easy to speak in kind of half-truths. It's very easy to know very little about a topic, but project yourself or position yourself as an authority. So conversations come up about healthcare. Conversations come up about, you know, foreign affairs and things like this. And you have this massive conversation with people talking about things that they may or may not know anything about, right? Those types of conversations do not happen very often here. Really? They don't. And and that is refreshing in some ways. The flip side of that is it's a bit more difficult to engage people, particularly in a public setting that may cause people to have to sort of lay down their cards and reveal things about themselves or about what they think, which can be embarrassing, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, generally in Japan, there's not a lot of that talking in half-truths or talking with, you know, a, a, a sparse knowledge about, about topics. Now, that is obviously not always the case, but it certainly has been part of my experience. But it's an uh, interesting concept as well. Yeah, I think that's one thing. Another thing would be the idea of preparedness. So, for example, what does preparing for an outdoor event look like? What does preparing for a short trip look like? So, if I'm going to take my kids fishing, I sit down and I think everything out. Okay, I need hand towels. I need hand wipes. Uh, it may be sunny. I need the lotion. Uh, we may catch a fish. I need to have a separate thing with, with a, a cool pack in it. Well, it may be hot. So the girls are going to need hats and perhaps it would be a good idea to have some sort of shelter. So I'll buy a pop-up little tent for that and so on and so forth. I mean, it's very methodical, the, the way that people prepare for things. They don't just go fishing. Nobody just goes fishing, right? On that, I actually yeah. did 
when I was in New Zealand, the company I worked for was the CEO was big on personality tests and oh, we like every other week we'd do a personality test and we had to know what everyone's personality was and how they react in certain situations and how they would plan things and how they would do things. And <laughs> But one of the yeah. things was there is a certain personality type that plans to the ninth degree and who yeah. – yeah, and there's others that don't, and yeah. so yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm hearing is you're saying that Japan is a country where everyone plans to the ninth degree. Yeah, and I mean, yes, that that is a stereotype because not everybody does. But but to be quite honest, if you didn't do that, people would look at you like, huh? So you're not prepared, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you're not prepared, right? Um, which, which is really interesting because, for example, when the girls have been in school and I go to one of their events, do I have my slippers? Do I have a bag to carry my shoes around when I'm in my slippers? Do I not take photos of the event because we're not supposed to take photos? Do I stand a certain way? Did I bring you know the pamphlet that tells me What's going to go down? Do I have a bottle of ocha in my bag because we're only going to have a five-minute break and so on and so forth? I mean, things run very much like that. But I suppose um, it also comes from in – I mean, what's the population of Japan? 127 million. Okay. That's quite a lot for such yeah. a small country. Yeah. So yeah. in order for a country like with such a small geographical area – but a large population, things have to run like clockwork. Yeah, I think so, man. Yep, I think so. Because, I mean, comparatively, take New Zealand. I'd say, I don't know exactly, but New Zealand would be similar size to Japan. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. But the population of New Zealand is teeny tiny. And so reflected in that is in the New Zealand way of life, they are very easygoing. And whilst you do have individuals who like to plan, uh, I saw it more commonly that a lot of Kiwis were just like, hey, let's go away this weekend. <laughs> just go away. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. hey, let's go for a ski trip. And yeah. they already <laughs> have all the gear. So yeah. they just get in the car and drive. Yeah. Yeah, that's almost unheard of here, man. Interesting. Yeah, almost unheard of. <laughs> which which I think my wife and I, in the beginning, we really kind of bumped up against that and really struggled with that, right? Because especially especially if you're including your Japanese friends on a trip, yeah, you know, they're going to see it as sort of half-assed if you're not preparing in that way. So, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And last question, where's the next destination on your hit list? Well, Jade, I've been invited to uh, give a plenary in Colombia and in Bogota. And so, yeah, the end of October, early November, I'll be traveling to, to Bogota. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So, you know, one, I guess one perk of being in the field that I'm in, it's really been 
kind of uh, a way for me to travel and kind of see and experience different places. So in the last year or two, I've been able to go to Turkey, um, Macau, and Borneo, um, South Korea, uh, among yeah, among other places, but Colombia is next. And, you know, I, I speak Spanish, so, but I'm very rusty. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see how it goes, but I'm really looking forward to it. Now, with family, I, you know, I'm not sure. I, we've talked a little bit about um, Thailand. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about Taiwan. And so I'm not sure what's going to happen next because a lot of my travel is without my family. So I would like to do something with them for sure. Well, if you're thinking of Thailand, I'd say go to the Philippines. Okay. There were, I did a whole podcast episode about the Philippines. but Yeah, I listened. I was listening. I was so blown away by the Philippines. I absolutely <laughs> loved every second of it. And especially, I mean, the main thing I was going there was for a cheap holiday and for snorkeling. Mm. And it was easy. Like I thought it was going to be difficult because I couldn't book a lot of things online like buses and ferries. Mm. But when I was there, I still organised everything and I didn't have any troubles. Everyone speaks like English even in tiny villages and the snorkeling was really clear and food was great and it was cheap oh, yeah. and it was really that. friendly and oh, just everything about it. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard that and, and actually I'm friends with quite a, few, uh, quite a few people who live and work there and yeah. uh, who are Filipino and, you know, judging from their photos, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> so Yeah, I just, um, I guess I'm getting to the stage of my travels where and I mean, everything's, everyone's travel experiences are different, but, um, I can't stand hordes of tourists. Yeah. Yeah. Just I, cringe. Understand. <laughs> I understand. And I went to Bali in January about two years ago with my family just cause it's cheap and yeah, we, you know, my family doesn't plan their vacations. So it was one of the few places that was still cheap to book yeah. at the last minute. And walking around downtown Kuta, I was just cringing the whole time because it was all like bogan Aussies. And, I mean, there was probably more white Anglo-Saxon Australians in Bali than what you'd see walking in downtown Sydney. Yeah, yeah. But um, Interesting. But in the Philippines, I mean, it's geared up for tourism but it's mostly locals who are traveling around. Yeah. Which obviously gives a, a completely different experience. Absolutely. Nat, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and thanks for coming on Travelosophy. Thanks for saying I have wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Travelosophy with Jade Jackson. If you'd like to say hi, you can tweet me at... Jadikins Jackson. You can also contact me on Reddit at username u slash Jadikins Jackson. Uh, if you'd like to say hi on Facebook, you can track me down at Travelosophy Podcast. If you'd like to check out my website, here you'll find my travel themed blog, past podcast episodes, as well as my online shop, where you can buy prints of all my travel photos and also send 
free e-cards to all of your friends. Head to jjackson.com.au. If you'd like bonus and exclusive content, then head to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash Jade Jackson. Thank you so much for listening to Travelosophy with Jade Jackson. Bye-bye now.